Father, may the words of my mouth, the meditations of all of our hearts, be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. In 1952, Joy Davidman came to visit C.S. Lewis. They had been corresponding for a while. They had become good friends. Eventually, they would marry. But uh, she had come to, to see him, and it was, uh, she brought with her a copy of his famous book, The Screwtape Letters. And she asked him to autograph it. And so uh, Lewis sat down, and he wrote and the inside front cover of the book, there are three false images that I am continually wrestling with. A false image of God, a false image of my neighbors, and a false image of myself. I think it's significant that Lewis wrote those words in the front of that book. This book that, that uh, describes, as he sees it, the way in which the, the evil one works to, to get into our lives and to create false ideas and images of God and others and us. Because Lewis understood that that's how the evil one tends to work, to create these false images. The interesting thing is when you read that book and you think about how the evil one works in Scripture, how it describes for us, even in our own lives, I rarely find that we are susceptible to arguments from the evil one that are completely wrong. Those are pretty easy to spot. The more dangerous things that the evil one does is to, to try to convince us of things that are not completely wrong, but things that are only partially true. And just to take the truth of, of God about Him, about others, about ourselves, and to turn it just enough that the end result is that we live our lives with a, with a skewed view of who God is, who we are, and who others are. And I've, I've been thinking about that, honestly, for quite some time. And as I was pondering, you know, what, to us, what for us to think about this fall, that idea kept coming back to me. And I sat down with a friend, and we began to write, write down some things that we called myths that make us. Things that, that are in our thinking, things that we, quite frankly, in our subconscious, almost take for granted in some ways that are true, but only partially true. And maybe things that may not be for everything, every one of these for all of us, but there are these things that, that we wrestle with that make us, make us live with skewed views, false images of God and of others and ourselves. And so over the next few months, we're going to be thinking about some of these myths that make us. And I want to start today with sort of the foundation of, of where we where we gain our understanding for the things we believe, and that is Scripture. To think about the Bible. In this passage in Nehemiah chapter 8, it is, uh, it is a story of uh, the exiles of Israel that have returned to Jerusalem. 
If you remember the story of God, the, the, the Israelites finally came to the place where they were so enmeshed in idolatry and rejecting God that God allowed the Babylonians to come and to invade the land and basically destroy Jerusalem, and they took many of the people back to Babylon as exiles. And now, years and years later, they have come back to Jerusalem. And the book of Jeremiah describes how he and the people rebuild the walls of the city. And now they have gathered in the square of Jerusalem to, to hear the Scripture read. During the time they've been exiles, and now we're generations away from the original exiles, the, the, the Torah, the Word of God, has been a minimal part of their existence for most of them. And so they gather, Ezra begins to read, and all the people stand and listen. And it says they stood and they listened all morning. All morning. If we had had you stand for the Scripture reading today, two or three minutes, I suspect some of us would have been saying, man, the Scripture reading is long. And now Ezra stands up and reads, the whole law, hour upon hour upon hour, the people stand and they listen. And the interesting thing to me is their response. It tells us that all the while Ezra was speaking, the people were weeping and mourning. It doesn't tell us why they were weeping and mourning, but I have a couple of ideas about that. I think one is they may have been a little bit of a sense of, wow, what we've been missing. And you know, sometimes, sometimes we, we can become teary-eyed when we realize we're now experiencing something we haven't been able to experience. I don't know about you, but there was something of that when we first reopened the church. And I, and, I, and I watched people coming into the building, and I have to tell you, it was a very emotional day for me. And I suspect it might have been emotional for some of you as well. That Sunday school started up again this morning after a year and a half. And I was walking around upstairs, going to rooms and praying for them, and I realized I haven't done this for a year and a half. There's something of that that comes to us. But I also think as they are listening to the law read, there is a sense of weeping and mourning about all the things they, are, they were not doing as God had commanded them to do. And they are overwhelmed with conviction and a sense of guilt that the law says, this is how you should live, and they weren't living that way. And the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon them, and, and, they, and they fell down in weeping and mourning. And you know, there is something about that that I wonder sometimes that causes us not to be as anxious to read Scripture because we're afraid it's going to convict us. And we don't want to be convicted. We want our lives to be just as they are, we like our lives. They're comfortable. And, and, and we, don't have to, we don't want to be challenged. We don't want, to be, we don't want the Holy Spirit to convict us. We don't, we don't want to, to, to be challenged about some of the things in our lives that, quite frankly, if we're honest, we know aren't where they should be. And we know that if we really get into reading Scripture, eventually, probably sooner than later, we're going to be convicted of those things, and we just don't want to be. And I wonder sometimes if that's one of the reasons why we have a, a mindset of avoidance about Scripture or maybe an avoidance about certain Scriptures. But these people hear, they weep, they mourn. 
But that's not their only response. When they start hearing who God is, when they start hearing the word proclaimed about the greatness of God and the smallness of who they are, their initial, almost instinctive reaction is to fall down and worship. They bow before God and worship. There's something about the reality of reading Scripture and recognizing who God is, the greatness of God, that leads us to worship. But there is also a call to celebration. And Ezra and Nehemiah and the leaders say to them, look, I understand why you're mourning, but this is not a time for mourning. This is a holy day. We have gathered together. We have read the word. We have reengaged with God's word, with the Torah. Don't mourn and weep. Celebrate. Because as they begin to read, not only do they hear the greatness of God, but they hear the great stories of God. God the creator, God the one who rescued them. They hear once again how God brought them as a people out of Egypt and set them up in the promised land. They hear once again the stories of David. They hear the stories of the prophets. They hear the stories of all the ways in which God has worked for them in the world. And that's not a reason to mourn and weep. That's a reason to celebrate God is good. God is merciful. God is gracious. God has rescued us. God the creator has called us to be his people. And that's a reason to celebrate. But there's also generosity here too. As they tell them twice, as you go celebrate, give food and provisions to people who are not prepared to celebrate. There is something about a genuine celebration of who God is and what God has done that leads us to generosity. In fact, I've come to the conclusion that maybe if we read Scripture and study Scripture seriously, that one of the indicators that, that it's getting to us in a, in a good way is that we begin to be much more generous with ourselves. Because the opposite of generosity is self-interest. The opposite of generosity is holding on to everything. And something about Scripture that reveals the goodness of God and the blessings of God and all the ways in which God has gifted us and called us and blessed us ought to lead us to be generous. And as Richard Middleton says, what was happening here is that as the, the, God, the Torah was doing what God intended and that was to make this people a community as he always intended them to be. That's what Scripture does for us. So after reading all of that, I'm thinking to myself, so why is it that, why is it that often that's not our response? Why is it that, that we don't celebrate Scripture? You ever wondered, I've thought to myself many times, how, why the, that the longest chapter in all of the Bible is Psalm 119. And Psalm 119 is 176 verses about how glorious and the celebration and the greatness and the joy of God's Word, of the law. I have to admit, as a as a young person, I, I would think to myself, how in the world can you celebrate 176 verses about the law? 
And I wonder, what, why is it that we struggle to celebrate the Word of God? And I wonder if one of the reasons for that is because the myth that we have bought into is that the real purpose of Scripture is God's rule book for us. That we see Scripture as, as, some, as, a, as purely a, 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 the law that God has given to us about how to behave what to do, what not to do. And that becomes the, the, the whole reason for Scripture. The problem with, with that is that as soon as Scripture becomes a rule book, we start doing all kinds of crazy things with it. I read about a Civil War captain who, when any of his men would, would do something unethical or immoral, they, if they swore or they stole something or they didn't do what they were, didn't obey orders, the punishment was to read a chapter in the Bible. Wow, that's going to make you really want to read it, isn't it? Something is a little askew with that perspective. But that's what happens. And you know, a thing about a rule book, I don't care if you're talking about uh, a, a rule book of, of volleyball, a rule book of Monopoly, a rule book of whatever you're talking about, rule books tend to create a mindset that says, how far can I go and still not be considered cheating? right? Or the other extreme is, how little do I have to do and still be considered okay? And maybe that's part of our problem, is that we, when we come to read Scripture, our mindset is, it's more about duty, it's more about obligation, than it is about experiencing God's grace to us through His Word about experiencing the glory of God and his, and his word to us. And yes, it does conclude places that should convict us. But we begin to understand that the conviction is not to bring us to obligation. The conviction is to bring us into deeper relationship with Christ. And you know, related to the whole rule book idea is this mindset of we're just looking, we're just looking for ways to get all of our questions answered so we don't have to think anymore. We want to be able to say, oh, I don't know what to do about that. Let's go look it up in the Bible because a rule book really is a reference book. You really just, re I mean, there's a few people that study a rule book. Most people just look it up to find out, okay, what do we do in this situation? And that's what the scriptures can become for us. I don't want to think about things. I just want my box, and I want my box to, to be filled. I want it to make sure I've got everything in there, and then I can just sit back and just relax. That, you know, that's what cult groups do. Cult groups are all about control. Cult groups are all about, about having everything wrapped up in a nice, neat package. Absolute certainty. We will tell you what to think, how to think, and when to think it. And it's attractive to people because, quite frankly, a lot of us don't want to really be challenged to think. Just tell us what we need to know. Just give us the cliff notes. That's all we're looking for. I don't think anyone's written cliff notes on the Bible, but I don't know. Maybe they have. But the Scripture, God gives us a Scripture, and he, and he designs it in a way that doesn't give us all the answers. In fact, He designs it with tension. All these parts of Scripture, they have the built-in tension. And the thing about tension is that it demands honesty. It demands wrestling. It demands questions. And ultimately, it demands trust.
And having all the answers doesn't really ask us to trust anymore. And God wants us to trust because in the end, God's ultimate purpose for the Scripture and God's ultimate purpose for our lives is not control, it's relationship. It's relationship that transforms us into the image of Christ. It's relationship that fills us with his joy and his love and his grace. As, as Paul writes to Timothy, is that the word of God is given to us so that ultimately it equips us for every good work. It equips us to be image bearers of Christ in this world and to experience the fullness of life in him. But that's not going to happen if our mindset is the scripture is obligation. a rule book you know there's a there's a part of the whole thing about rule book that sort of has a, another side to it and that is that sometimes we think the scripture is intended to just enable us to make sure we believe all the right things and now believing right things is important it's vitally important theology is very important what we believe matters it matters deeply but often I've noticed that we don't really have disagreements and our struggles with each other are not over the core essential issues. They're about the way we interpret all the other things, the opinions, the peripheral things. And what ends up happening when it's about believing right things is that all we care about is making sure that we believe the right things and then also making sure everybody else believes the right things. Now, let me say this also. We need, this is not a call to, to take the Scriptures lightly, to not study the Scriptures, to not understand the Scriptures the best we can. You'll notice in this Nehemiah passage, the Levites are explaining things to the people. They're interpreting things to the people. They're helping them understand it. That's vitally important. And we ought to give ourselves to that. There is a way in which Scripture, as one writer says, can become the end, the text can become the end in and of itself instead of a means to encountering God. And it's a very different mindset, very different perspective. I love what A.J. Swoboda says. He said, my problem with the Bible is that so often it doesn't fit my theology. And that irritates me. I have that issue sometimes too. And here's what happens when, when we have this, when subtly we see the Scripture as obligation, when we see the Scripture as, as a rule book, when we see the Scripture as just about making sure we believe the right things, what ends up happening is it's a myth that makes us oppressive. We become oppressive toward other people toward people who don't believe the way we believe. We can become very oppressive toward them, very legalistic toward them, very demanding toward them. A few years ago, I was having breakfast with a, a theologian who had come to speak on campus. And in the course of the conversation, I, I've discovered that this person taught at one seminary and now they were moving to a different one. And I just asked them why they were making that change. And they said, well, there is a, another person that teaches at the seminary and is also a pastor and fairly famous person. 
He said, uh, we have some differences of opinion about some theological issues. And this other pastor came to this gentleman I was talking to and said, look, we have these differences, and I'm, a, I'm, I'm frustrated about that. I'm concerned about it. And so I've made it my life goal to get you fired. And the gentleman talking to me said, I knew that that was true. I knew he would do it because he'd already gotten one or two other people fired for the same thing. And he said, I just decided in that moment, I didn't really want to have that kind of battle with him, so I found another place to teach. I'm not sure that's what God intends Scripture to cause us to do. What ends up happening is we're thinking, I just have to guard my perspective. I have to guard my opinions. I have to guard my way of thinking about Scripture. And honestly, it's a sign of, I think, insecurity. Because we aren't sure that Scripture can stand up to questions. We, don't, we aren't sure that Scripture can stand up to our honest wrestling. And I'm here to tell you, it can. But we can get lost in this myth, and it becomes very oppressive toward other people. And what ends up happening is we, we see it as a zero-sum game. If they're right, then I must be wrong, and I cannot be wrong. And it becomes a matter of trying to figure out who's in and who's out. And if they're in, that means I'm out, and that can't be. So I have to make sure they know I'm in and they're out. Now, it doesn't mean we can't disagree. It doesn't mean we have to agree about everything. We're not going to. That's craziness to think that we would agree about everything in Scripture. We agree about the core things. We agree about the central things, the, the most important things. By, yes, but there's a whole lot of other things that we can disagree about. We don't have to agree about everything, but we do have to love always. We have to love always. It's just a problem with a rule book. You think about, take, it, take the baseball rule book, for instance. You know, a baseball rule book is a really thick document with all the things that they can think of about what to do. You know why the rules are all in there, too? Because somebody tried to, tried to operate, tried to play the game in a way that was outside the rules. That's what rule books do. So, okay, well, they got to rein them in. But, you know, rule book, the baseball rule book doesn't lead to harmony among players and umpires and teams. It creates disagreements. It creates problems, right? That's what, leads, that's what it leads to. It creates the scenarios where managers are kicking dirt on umpires and they're yelling at each other and umpires are throwing people out of the game. That's what rule books do because I have to be right. Scripture doesn't say, doesn't call us to see it as a rule book. It calls us to see it as God's gracious gift to us. As a letter of his love to us. But you see, the oppressiveness is not just toward other people. It's also toward, toward Christ, toward the Holy Spirit. Because when we have this mindset that says, this is my belief, this is it, I've locked it in, there's nothing else. What we're doing is saying, the Holy Spirit can't Teach me, tell me, convict me, move me about anything. And when you read the Gospels, isn't that what you see about the scribes? They figured it all out. Nobody knows the Scriptures like they do. And here comes Jesus standing in front of them, doing everything a Messiah would do. And they not just miss him, they reject him. 
And my fear for myself is that I can become so enamored with my theological perspective and the way that I think about things and the way I see the scriptures that I miss, I actually miss something new the Spirit wants to teach me. Some, some new idea that the Spirit wants to call me to that is going to lead me to change something that I've found so precious to me and I want to hang on with everything I have and I need to let go. And again, hear me, I'm not talking about the core things of our faith. We hang on to those to the death. But most of our disagreements, most of our closed-mindedness to the Spirit isn't usually about those things. It's about the things that we want to feel comfortable about and settled about and not have to think about anymore. And that's why I think verse 3 is the most important verse in this whole story in Nehemiah 8. Where the writer says to us that Ezra stood up to read and the people listened closely. They listened intently. There was this eager expectation as they heard the word about what God was going to say to them. There was this passionate engagement as the word was read to them about wanting to know and hear who God is and who they are and God's passionate love for them and the call to a passionate response to him. They were eagerly, passionately anticipating that. That's the only way we should be approaching Scripture. And that takes humility. It takes humility to look at Scripture like that and to say, God, whatever you want to say to me, I'm here, I'm ready, I'm listening. Even if it means that it's going to mess with some of the things that are so dear to me, if you need to mess with those things, you mess with them. I want to come with that kind of humility and openness to you. Just let me hear you. Because I want to live in the fullness of who you are. I want to be shaped more and more into the image of Christ. It's that spirit of, of surrender. It's that submissive attitude that Dallas Willard talks about. And one of the writings of the Desert Fathers is a story of a pupil that comes to a rabbi and says, Rabbi, why is it that the Torah says that we are to place the words of God on our hearts. Shouldn't it say we've placed the words of God in our hearts? And the rabbi smiled and said, here's the thing. We all, we all come to God with hard hearts. And the best thing we can do, the only thing we can do is to put, place the word of God on our hard hearts and then ask God to start breaking and cracking and opening up our hard hearts so that the word begins to filter and seep into us. I think God is asking that of us. I love what N.T. Wright says. He says to hear God through the scriptures is not a matter of precise technical exactness and expertise. It's a matter of love. It's a matter of love for God and wanting to hear God speak and to embrace his word to each one of us. I was talking with someone this week and they were telling me that, that um, they've been having some hearing issues. 
This is a young person in their 30s. They said they're having some hearing issues. So they were a little worried, concerned about that. So they went to, to have their hearing checked. And the hearing was checked, and the audiologist said, your hearing is fine. So they said to the audiologist, well, then why am I having hearing issues? And she said, well, I'm not sure, but here's the theory that we're working with in the audiology world, is that after 18 months or so of this pandemic, when so many of us have been inside and by ourselves and, and limited outside noise, that all of us, our brain has sort of turned down the volume setting on our hearing because we don't need it. And she said, what we're going to have to do is to retrain our brains to turn the volume back up again so we can hear more of what we used to be able to hear. And when I heard that, I thought to myself, you know what, that's exactly what we need to do with Scripture. The myths that invade our minds create an atmosphere in which we have turned down the volume of the Holy Spirit and His desire to speak into our lives and the passionate, passionate desire and yearning that each one of us needs is to ask the Holy Spirit to help us turn that back up. Not out of duty, not out of obligation, but out of love. What's fascinating to me is that if we could see that in many ways Scripture is God's great love letter to every one of us, and it is the love letter of the one who makes this table a reality. A love letter of the one who, who is so passionate about us that he goes to the cross for us. And he promises relationship with us. He promises transformation in us. He promises life eternal with us. He's simply asking us to engage ourselves in his word and his spirit by listening. Holy Father, thank you for your grace and mercy to us through your word. We pray, Father, that you will give us the ability to have a new vision to hear and to engage, that your word might come alive in us and even transform us through your spirit. Father, we thank you for the bread and the cup of which we are about to partake this morning. May it be food for our souls. And may it fill our hearts, our minds, every part of our being with the joy of Christ that is our strength. In his name we pray. Amen.